0: So we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, and we are now on chapter 12. We jumped around a little bit, but we're gonna, it's going to read a little longer um, passage because one of those things that I've tried to share in this series is how sometimes um, portions of Revelation can be taken out of context and used in different ways, and, and as well as one of the things that's often missing is the songs, and they're full of songs, and this passage ends with this beautiful song of hope. So here are these words. Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she was pregnant, and she cried out because she was in labor and pain from giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, it was a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven royal crowns on his head, and his tail swept down a third of heaven's stars and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is now to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched up to God in his throne. And then the woman fled into the desert, where God had prepared a place for her. There she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. And then there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and they did not prevail. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down, the old snake who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown to the the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in high school, there was a, a, a cartoon that came out that was kind of geared for boys in high school. Um, I was the target demographic, and it was about, but it was about these four elementary school kids um, in Colorado, and it was this town, a uh, suburb of Denver called South Park. And it's, it still runs every once in a while. It's one of those shows where you can't ever find a clip to show on Sunday morning. Um, it's it's a little it's a little raunchy. It's not really yeah, Sunday morning kind of tastes. But they had this one episode that I I remember vividly that kind of played off of a a pay per like a wrestling pay-per-view or a boxing pay-per-view and it said Jesus versus Satan live on pay-per-view. And it was the, the showdown of Jesus and Satan, and they were going to have a pay-per-view about it, and they were going to have gambling about it, all these kinds of things, and they're getting ready to do this. And they have this image of the South Park image of Jesus, is this like scrawny, pasty white guy with like, looks like a hippie, looks like a, like a weak, a really weak hippie, not like a tough hippie, like a weak hippie. Um, the one where like the song is about, I love pudgy hippies, like that's the, that's the kind of Jesus... Jesus looks like in South Park. Um, the devil, on the other hand, is, is, like, like makes the, is so muscular and large, makes the rock look puny, and um, is red, and, and he looks like he's going to just like, tear Jesus in half. It looks like what you would think, like that's what a powerful person looks like. In the actual show... Uh, because of the gambling and the odds that Jesus is getting, Jesus is getting like 6,000 to 1 odds, so the devil bets on Jesus to win, and he throws the fight. Um, so he can make money off of the gambling, because that's what the, the devil does. But it does present this, this image of how, how power and authority are often portrayed on the earth. The, the powerful one, the strong one, is the one with, with the might who gets his way, who wins in battle, in martial contest. The one with the weapons, the one with the money, the one with the authority. This is different, though, than power revealed in the Gospels. The power that is revealed in the Gospels is revealed in weakness. This is the great thing about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says to turn the other cheek, is to let the other person win because you don't have to win. What is fascinating with these images throughout the scriptures, even like Michael, we see Michael and his angels. That word angels is uh, in Greek is angelos, it's messengers. It's not, it's not um, angelic heavenly forces with swords and, and glittering shields that's often portrayed in this. It's like it's messengers sending the message. Evangelism, the good news, good message is a word for message. There's nobody in the New Testament that's described with overflowing muscles or firepower. There's no Samson in the New Testament. Jesus and Peter aren't complimented for never skipping leg day. That's not the issue thereafter. And And it's not like victory in battle wasn't seen as this great thing at that time. I mean, a few hundred years before, Judas Maccabeus had rebelled against the Seleucid Greeks and saved the Hebrew people from, from that kind of tyranny. And a lot of people thought that's what they wanted from Jesus. They wanted another Judas Maccabeus. They wanted another King David to give them martial victory so they could feel, not just be free, but feel free. Feel like they earned their freedom. This was a time when there was a lot of conflict and a lot of, a lot of battles. They were currently, at this time, under the Roman Empire, which had a lot of wars, they fought a lot of wars. And one of the theories about why Rome fought so many wars is that every twenty to forty years, every generation of men needed to prove themselves, and the place to prove themselves was in battle. So if it had been about twenty years since another war, the Romans were looking, okay, who can we, who can we prove ourselves against, over and over again. Now, there are many people in this church who are, who are veterans, who have served and have active family members, and I, I don't think we shouldn't conflate um, ancient warmongering with the service you all have, have offered to our country. But unfortunately, the thinking wasn't only in the ancient world. If you go back about 100 years ago, in 1914, in the summer of 1914, there was a lot of that same logic going on in Europe. In 1914, it had been about uh, 44 years since Germany, or Prussia at that time, had won a war, won a great war in the Franco-Prussian War. And there were a generation of men had grown up who wanted to prove themselves. They had heard about the great heroes of the war, of Bismarck and Moltke and these guys, and they wanted to show that they were just as great, and they were ready for conflict. And the reason why Prussia had invaded, uh, or had attacked France in 1870 was because they had been ashamed about 60 years before by Napoleon, and Napoleon had conquered Prussia about five times, and there was generations of people who were ready to prove themselves in battle. France as well, at that time in 1914, was ready to prove themselves, that they wanted to get away from the people who had lost the Franco-Prussian War. They wanted to prove they weren't like their fathers, they weren't losers like their parents, they were going to be real men and win a real battle. Russia was ready to prove themselves. They had ashamed themselves 10 years earlier in the Russo-Japanese War, and they were ready to show that they were a real European power who, c- who could compete on the world stage. And then Austria, at this time, had the same king who had been king in 1850. And he was, Franz Josef, was so old. He was so, such a soul old man. Um, and their, their empire was falling apart, and they wanted to prove that they deserved to still be there. And they saw war as the place to prove it. They saw conflict as the place to prove what a person could be. My friends, we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, on trying to, to hold the whole book in a different light and understand that Revelation is not about our future, but it is about who we are. What is the source of our identity? What kind of story do we think we are in? What do we think we need in our lives? What do we value in our lives? Conflict is very different in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. If you've ever read through the Bible or done a disciple class or another class like that, um, it's, it's pretty jarring when you get to it. Jesus is not a war hero. Peter and the other disciples aren't soldiers, but fishermen and tax collectors, not the most masculine of Jobs, but if you read in the Old Testament, if you read Numbers and Judges and Joshua, and it's filled with war. If you read the first and second Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles, it's filled with battles. One aspect of this led to a lot of people reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, thinking there was a different God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And this is a temptation that has has followed the Church a long time. It's called Marcionism. It's a it's an old old heresy, but it still props up every once in a while. Seeing that, oh no, God, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's angry. God's angry in the Old Testament, but God's kind and nice in the New Testament. Um, but, but this misreads, it's a picking and choosing, a cherry picking what's going on and what Jesus is saying. And the difference between the, the martial language in the Old and the New is what the conflict is about. There's conflict in the New Testament, it is just a different kind of conflict. There is an enemy, there is a challenge. Human existence doesn't lack for enemies. Cosmic reality doesn't lack for enemies. As one of my teachers wrote, cosmic struggle sounds like a video game that children play. Most of us do not go to church because we seek a safe haven from our enemies. We go to church to be assured that we have no enemies. Who would hate us? Who is our enemy? It is easier, when we are being told by Jesus to pray for our enemies, to imagine that we don't have any enemies. Like, oh, Jesus, it's okay. I don't need to pray for anybody. I don't got any enemies. It's fine. Ugh, it's so hard being me, because I don't have any enemies. I wish I had an enemy that I could pray for, and then I could be even holier. Um. (laughs) Or there is this temptation, I think, that's really, that's a lot more apparent in the last few years because of the divisiveness of the politics in this country, to take personal offense at other people's ideas. How dare they think that? How dare they think that? They are enemies of common sense in society. If they post this, I will not speak to them again. If they say this, I'm never talking to them again. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he doesn't mean that person or those kind of people. He doesn't, he's not talking about them. Oh my gosh, Jesus wouldn't want to speak to them. Jesus is speaking to a reality of conflict that we must come to grips with. And what we see in the book of Revelation with this powerful imagery is that there is a conflict going on. And there are consequences for this conflict. Any story you read or watch or, or, or participate in has some kind of conflict. For conflict, in conflict, identity is either shaped or changed. Now, conflict does not need to be physically violent. If you you know, In like elementary English, we talk about like um, person versus person conflict, or person versus society, or person versus nature, in these kinds of ways. But conflict shows what is going on in a person's life, shows what is the source of their identity. Who are they really? How can it be made known and understood? And for those of us who have been touched by Jesus Christ, the source of our conflict, I mean, the source of our identity, not our conflict, the source of our identity is found in the words we say when we share communion together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That is, that is the source that, that we are found and known by the God who has loved and offered And what we have in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 is this amazing recapitulation of what is going on in the life of Jesus, in the incarnation of Jesus, in God becoming human as a child. We have the announcement to Mary. We have the birth of Jesus. We have the life of Jesus. It all takes place here. And I think Romans 12 is one of the more powerful arguments against reading the book of Revelation as solely focused on a future chronology because it is really hard not to read it as something that that has already happened. It takes the incarnation, it takes what happens at Christmas and transposes it onto a cosmic scale. No longer are we just in that stable in Bethlehem. We are, now, we are now looking at the scope of the entire universe. And we still have these narratives on top of narratives. We have stories on top of stories. We have a woman crying out. We have seven crowns and diadems. There's a great red dragon sweeping stars from the sky. And they flee to the desert. Just like Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. And a war breaks out in the heavenlies and Michael appears with his angels, with his messengers. And these powerful images all allude to different scriptures as well. We have the dragon, which alludes to the serpent found in Exodus 7. In Deuteronomy 32, there are allusions to a dragon as well in Job 7. And the one who devours the vulnerable in Jeremiah 51. We see Michael as a prince of the heavens in Daniel 10, as an archangel and a leader of the angels in Jude. And I've already mentioned the woman at the very beginning of chapter 12. I read her as Mary, but there are a few other ways of interpreting her. She is also seen as the people of God. Another reading sees her as the Jewish people, and another reading sees her as the church. We have layer upon layer of images. You cannot separate these images from the context coherently. They're not placed here in a one-to-one linear relationship with some future timeline. They're illustrations of the power of God. To see them as illustrations instead of chronological predictions does not lessen their power or the power of God. It only lessens the power of false teachers who think they have it all figured out and they don't have to worry about anything else except what their predictions tell of them. And they don't have to heed the warning of Jesus that says, you shall not know the time or the hour. The false teachers who say Revelation is just about us and them, and as long as you're a part of us and not a part of them, you're okay. So stick with the us and stay away from the m, the them. But that is not what is going on here. That is not what is revealed here. The climax of existence, the battle of life over death, is not an us- versus them. But it is revealed here. Even though we know the end, there is still drama. We have a spoiler alert in the book of Revelation. We know who has the victory. We know who wins. Life wins over death. In his his great poem, Paradise Lost, John Milton uh, wrote about these heavenly conflicts, and it's been kind of interpreted in different ways over time. I I saw that they're going to they might be making a new movie about Paradise Lost, which I think would be a horrible film. Um, it's like a 12,000-line you know, like poem <laughs> in English. It's not very... Anyways, that's a, that's a separate thing, but it's, it's powerful. And if you've ever read it before, if you remember, the very beginning of the poem takes place in hell, and it takes place with Lucifer. And it's this conflict, and, and Lucifer is presented in a similar fashion to what's going on in South Park. He's presented as, like, really strong, really powerful he's almost presented as a heroic protagonist. And there have been people who've read the poem as if the devil is actually the hero. And there's this famous line that people quote from a lot and misunderstand that it's like, I'd rather be a, like a king in hell than a slave in heaven. And people present this as, as like, oh yeah, the devil, he's the one who really has freedom. He gets to do whatever, they, whatever he wants But this this is a deep misreading of what's going on because the poem slowly deconstructs evil, deconstructs the devils in the satanic, satanic forms of power and shows how they devolve into nothingness. They eventually just bicker themselves out. All the devils are just constantly in this argument that never goes anywhere. And they just tear themselves apart. And even when Jesus finally confronts the devil, in book six of, of the poem. It's not like this, this pay-per-view conflict. Milton says that in Jesus did not use half his strength. He did not even have to struggle in that confrontation because the heavenly battle is not a fair fight. Jesus and the devil are not on equal footing. The powers of wickedness and the powers of God are not on equal footing. God does not seek balance in this world. The Holy Spirit is not like the Force in Star Wars. It's not just offering and making sure that everybody is on even terms. Dualism is an easy trap to fall into, to imagine that good and evil are equal and constantly battling it out, but that is not what is found in the Christian faith. Balance is only found in light. Darkness, wickedness, evil, the devil, they all suck up light. In life, the ambition cannot be contained or sustained, and it does not stand on equal footing with the light of the world. And the book of Revelation is not just about the end of days, but how brokenness, tragedy, disease, these will all come to an end. And we can experience that end today. We can experience it at sharing the table together, at sharing worship together, at sharing communion together. And we experience it with the, we experience it with the concrete practice of loving our enemies. We love our enemies not because we're just so darn good people, but because Christ is victorious. We wish the best for our enemies, not because of how morally awesome we are, but because of how Christ is victorious. Again, we may think that we do not have enemies, but that is only because we are deceiving ourselves. In this world, when we have relations with people, our enemies may not be people who want to destroy us, or kill us, it may just be people who want to wish us ill, people who irritate us, people who we don't want to spend any time with. For each of us, there is someone in our life that when we see they're calling us, we don't really want to talk to them. We may decide to to block that number a little bit. Someone whom we're not going to call back. For each of us, there are people who have done something to us, to our detriment, who have hurt us. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus never says or implies this, that the, to love our enemies is to stay in systems of abuse, in relationships of abuse. It's, it's something else is going on here. But being able to name that, name who people are to us, is a is beginning of something new. Now, I want us to go through a little exercise as, as we end today. I want you to take a moment to either close your eyes or if you never like closing your eyes, you can leave them open. I'm not going to i not going to judge. Um, and I want you to, to think a moment and imagine someone in your life whom you love. So just think of that person. You can think of their name or an image or a picture. And then I want you to pray for the best for them, for the best things to happen for them. Now I want you to take a moment and to imagine someone you barely know, someone you may have just met or someone new in your life. And I want you to pray for the best for them. Okay, now it gets tricky. Uh, Now I want you to think about someone in your life who bothers you, who irritates you who you don't really want to think about, but you're only doing so because the pastor's telling you you need to think about this person. Um, I want you to just imagine that. You don't have to think of their picture. That might be too hard, just like the name or even just the letter. And I want you to pray for the best for them. And now this is the hardest one. I want you to think about someone, someone who's your enemy, someone who's hurt you, someone who's wronged you, someone who may just not, just be mean to you. And I want you to pray for the best for them. So many things in life are zero sum. If you have something, another person doesn't. If they have something, you don't. But the life with God is not. When, we, when Christians pray for the best for someone, it's not that they get whatever they want in life or they succeed at their job or everything works out for them. It's that love enters their heart. It's that the love of Christ enters their heart. It's the sacrificial love of Christ offered on the cross that that, that is offered to them. And when we pray for people who we may, it may be hard to name our enemies, but people who have hurt us, we open up space in our own heart for God to enter in. We free ourselves by praying for others. We free ourselves from, from spite and scorn and other things that degrade us. Christ is victorious. All is possible. Even hardened hearts can be softened by the power of God. We pray for our enemies, we pray for those who despise us, not because we are so awesome, but because God has won the victory. And those despisers of our life will not win. We lift them up to God because of who God is and what God has offered for us. We do not come here as people without enemies. There is conflict in this world. There is brokenness in this world. There is conflict in our lives. We cannot deny it. But our hope is not in the brokenness. Our hope is not in being victorious in all our conflicts or relationships. Our hope is not in charismatic leaders with bulging muscles and lots of weapons. Our hope is not in heroic victory. Our hope is not found in willing ourselves forward or in living our best life now. Or in overworking ourselves. Our hope is found in the lamb who is slain, who sits upon the throne and offers himself freely to each of us, freely to even our enemies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your love and your life were offered for us. We did not take it or earn it, but in our unworthiness, you gave yourself for us. Help us not seek glory in this world, but seek your way of love and peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.